Thank you so much, Pastor Kenneth, for leading us in the service and Elder Waon for leading us in songs with the team. Good morning, everyone. I ask you to please uh, keep your Bibles open to Psalm 74, uh, as well as you might find it helpful if you are inclined to take notes uh, to use the sermon outline in the e-bulletin. So you can download that right now. Uh, but before that, maybe before you download, please join me in prayer first. Lord God, please let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, let me ask you this question in the beginning. What would you consider a lost cause? Okay, what's something that is beyond redemption? I think for Pastor Jason, who's at the back with me, right, uh, myself as well, we are long-time Liverpool Football Club supporters. It's the hope of Liverpool winning the league this season uh, that is a lost cause. Because currently they are languishing in the 10th position. And tonight there's a crucial match against Arsenal, one of the league leaders. Right? So it's probably a lost cause, right, Jason? Shaking his head, yeah. And some of us parents may be worrying that our primary six children, the child's PSLE last week, is a lost cause. I can say this because I know all the P6 uh, children and their parents are not here today. They are away in the P6 farewell service. So we may feel that their exams are a lost cause. And yet we can be hopeful, we can be assured that by God's grace, our children themselves aren't a lost cause no matter what their results may be. So when we see what seems to be a lost cost, what can we do about it? Well, some people may choose to just jump sheep, you know, just abandon battle stations, just forsake everything and go to another place. But how can we do that with our children, our own children? And what about God's church? Will God reject and forget us if He sees us as a lost cost? For example, Christianity in Japan seems like a lost cause after the 17th century. There were persecutions in Japan in which more than 400,000 Christians at that time were almost wiped out or renounced their faith. And so this was portrayed in the 2016 movie Silence by Martin Scorsese, and it was starring Andrew Garfield. So I don't know how many of you have watched this. I haven't. Hey, but I read about it. Uh, but even, even today, a mission agency reports this, that only 0.8% of the Japanese population are professing an evangelical Christian faith. And this tiny number is declining as fewer younger people are coming to faith in Christ. With every passing year, the average age of Christian believers is creeping higher and higher. If this trend continues, the church in Japan will all but disappear. It's such a grim projection, don't you think? Meanwhile, Christians in other parts of the world remain persecuted, beginning from Afghanistan and North Korea and even countries around us in Southeast Asia. You can follow open doors, updates about our persecuted brethren in these countries. 
Now, if you turn to the West, things don't look better. Right? Liberal theology and moral compromise over the decades have led to falling church attendance. So many old church buildings in post-Christian Europe, as well as uh, other parts of the West, are being converted into restaurants and museums like this. Political affiliations has divide, have divided the church in the United States for decades, and has resulted in a loss of evangelical credibility and witness. Elsewhere, Australia's 2021 census shows an increase in its non-religious population, with adherence of Christianity falling below 50% for the first time, and is continuing to decline at a rate of 8 to 10% every five years. In Singapore, things are not much better. Right? The non-religious segment continues to rise at a slower rate, but still is a cause for concern because this group is especially among the young. Now, all this bad news, all this sad news right, that we read uh, about, we hear about now on a Sunday, you may be wondering, what is this? Why are you making me so depressed on a Sunday morning? But it, may, it must make us wonder, is Christianity a lost cause? What can God's confused and suffering church do in all these troubles that we are going through? In Psalm 74, the psalmist Asaph, his worry is precisely this, that God's people, along with God's temple, has become a lost cause. He fears that God has forgotten them or has rejected them. And so in this psalm, we see the word remember appearing three times in the Hebrew text, along with two times, do not forget, do not forget us and one have regard. Now, clearly, the psalmist is crying out to God for God to remember. In verses 1 to 3, he asks God to remember his redeemed people. In verses 4 to 11, to remember his false actions. In verses 12 to 17, to remember his own past actions. And in verses 18 to 23, to remember his covenant and to act. So first, we look at verses 1 to 3, where he calls God to remember your redeemed people. Verse 1 says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The psalmist fears that God has utterly forgotten and rejected his people. And that is why his anger smolders against them. Now, what is the evidence for the psalmist's fear? What reason does he have for this accusation against God, that God has forsaken them? Well, in verse 3, he says this. He asks God to direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Here is his evidence. Here is his reason. He pleads with God to literally lift up your feet and make your way. Go down to see the temple. To, to, to see the temple in ruins. The enemy here likely refers to the Babylonians, especially under King Nebuchadnezzar, who ordered the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 586 BC. And this verse helps us to date this psalm sometime between 586 BC, after the temple was destroyed, but before its rebuilding in 515 BC. 
is during this period that this psalm was written. And at this point, the temple in Jerusalem still lies in utter ruins. There doesn't seem to be any likelihood of it being rebuilt. Now, speaking of ruins, there's one just near my place, my home. Right? So this construction of an old mansion in Hillview Estate was abandoned in the 1950s. And since then, this site has been reputed to be haunted. It's one of three famous haunted houses in Singapore until it was finally demolished in 2006. Now, there are several theories why this building was left uncompleted. Uh, some people speculate it was due to the tragic death of the owner's mistress on the site. It could be due to a business failure, so he didn't have money to continue building, or security concerns, some people think, because it's just next to the fencing of our Ministry of Defence headquarters. So no one really knows for sure. It's all speculation. Uh, next photo. My family visited this site last year simply out of interest, but we couldn't enter because it's now locked up. Right? So in case you're wondering, the blue blur on the bottom right, that's not, not, that's not something suspicious. It's just my son running around. <laughs> Nothing spooky there. But according to this psalmist, there was no doubt, there was no question why the temple lies in ruins for so long. He did not need to speculate. He knows for sure. It's because God remains angry with his people. And so his question is this. God, is your anger going to last forever? Why do you cast us off forever? Direct your steps to the perpetual of forever ruins. Will God continue to be angry? Or will God relent and restore his people again? To the psalmist, the temple ruins, they are a haunting reminder of God's ongoing judgment. Now, in a troubled marriage, if your marriage is going through some troubles, and all our marriages go through troubles at some point, right, it's always good to recall, to remember, to remember the early years, how you overcame various hardships in order to get together, to remember the trials of early parenthood, from changing diapers and chasing after toddlers to the later years of raising rebellious teens. Surviving life-threatening health issues together, as well as perhaps for some of us, business failures. We went through lots of hardships together. And all these are reasons to stay on in this difficult marriage. Even when things seem hard, even when the marriage seems like a lost cause. Likewise for friendships and other things as well. So the psalmist also urges God to remember in these times of hardship. He says in verse 2, Remember your congregation, which you've purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Now, this congregation here is the people you have assembled long ago, O God. The psalmist is doing a callback to the Exodus when God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And by his mighty acts of salvation in the ten plagues and in the opening of the Red Sea, God had purchased, he had redeemed Israel to be his own people, his enduring possession. And then he dwelt with Israel on Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem and for its temple. 
But all this seems to be behind them right now. For now, Mount Zion lies in ruins. God's people are back in slavery, this time to the Babylonian Empire. And so after asking God to remember his redeemed people, the psalmist now pleased with God as well to remember your foes' actions in verses 4 to 11. The psalmist recounts what God's foes did in verses 4 to 7. Your foes have wrought in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of, fire, of, of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. These verses describe what the enemy soldiers did to the temple as they entered in. The roaring of the wild beasts probably refers to the clamour of the troops as they celebrate their triumph, as the boisterous bellows of the warriors replaces the pious praise of the worshippers. So their regimental standards replace the religious symbols. With hatchets and hammers, they demolish the carved cedar panels and the olive wood doors, just as lumberjacks chop down an entire forest of trees. And to finish off the work, they burned the temple down with fire and defiled its grounds. Such was the arrogance of the Babylonian army that they dared to set up their military emblems before they destroyed the temple. And they also boasted in this way, we will utterly subdue them as they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Now, this is not new. From the earliest persecutions of Christians by the Jewish religious leaders in Judea to the state-sanctioned persecutions under the Roman Empire and later regimes as well, such is the arrogance and violence of human rulers and world powers. I read from this BBC piece about the 17th century Japanese persecutions again. A man waits nervously in line to be caught. When he hears his name, he steps forward, watched closely by local and government officials from the capital. In front of the man is a small bronzed image, something like this on the screen, fixed with the image of Jesus Christ on the cross. The man is told to step on it. If he does, it is a public declaration that he has given up his faith and he will leave to see another day. If he doesn't, he could face execution, crucifixion or torture. And torture is this, forced into boiling hot springs or suspended upside down in a pit of excrement. Any sign of hesitation could cost him his life. This practice of stepping on Christian images, known as fumi, was widespread in the city of Nagasaki in the 17th century. And so the, the image that we saw earlier, the, the, uh, the image of Christ with the face worn off, uh, it's actually an actual piece. Uh, the face was worn off by the hundreds of people who stepped on the image of Christ. This ban of Christianity was only lifted over 200 years later in Japan, in 1873. 
And over those 200 over years, Christians in Japan had fallen from over 500,000 to the time they opened up was only 20,000. Under Mao Zedong, the Chinese government also tried to eliminate religion altogether. And Christianity was especially seen as an external threat to the Communist Party. Even today, many church buildings are forcibly, forcefully demolished and church leaders are imprisoned and killed. I read from an article, another article, thousands of crosses have been torn down and some churches have not only been closed but demolished. In 2018 alone, so this is an old article, the Golden Lampstand Church was dynamited, blown up by dynamite. Zion Church was forced to close and the Home of Christ Church in Shantou, Guangdong Province was shut after the, the authorities called it an illegal religious organization. Now, I wonder how you feel as you read or hear of all this news. Perhaps like me, and I admit it, uh, you and I have been desensitized so much by the media that we don't really feel or care anymore. And so we read of tragedies like mass shootings in the US or what Pastor Kenneth prayed pray about, the childcare center attack in Thailand just how many days ago? Three days ago, this Thursday, in which at least 24 children have died. This grabbed the headlines for a few days on our 24-hour news cycle. And then they are quickly supplanted by newer tragedies and events. But before that, as followers of the Lord Jesus as believers, can we take some time to cry out to God about these injustices? especially for our Christian brothers and sisters who suffer for the Lord? Or do we simply just let it go? Dare we, dare we to even pray for God's judgment on the perpetrators? So I think the prayer that Pastor Kenneth prayed earlier was, a, was an excellent one, right? Uh, he actually prayed for all these different aspects, for God's justice to be meted out, for, God, for the perpetrators to come to justice, but also to repent. All this are things that we should be praying for. And yet for this psalmist, uh, these things that happened to his people, the disgrace of his people, the destruction of the temple, they remain constantly fresh on his mind. He doesn't just forget about them so easily. And so he cries out to God in verse 9. He says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O Lord, how, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the foe of your garments and destroy them. See, the religious symbols in the temple have been removed, and the prophets are silent, and so the people are left with no guidance. They do not know how long this will last. Notice the refrains of how long and forever, which is also found in verses 1, 3, and 19. Right? The psalmist fears that God's enemy will triumph forever over God's people, and they will mock God forever. And so he asked God to act and to destroy them. But really, all this request of the psalmist, his greatest concern is really for the honour of God's name, 
lest the enemy reviles God's name forever. We also see this throughout this psalm. He says to God in verse 7, It is the dwelling place of your name that the foes have profaned. Later in verse 18, A foolish people reviles your name. In verse 21, he asks God to let the poor and needy praise your name. Brothers and sisters and friends, that should be our key motivation when we pray for God to judge people and punish their injustices. But ever so often, your outcry and my outcry at injustices come with mixed motives. They are corrupted by our personal fears and hatreds. When we are lost for words, perhaps we can let the words of this psalmist guide our prayers. The next time we learn news about injustices, especially against fellow believers, we can also pray these words. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the foe of your garment and destroy them. We can use this prayer for ourselves as well. Well, another reason the psalmist pleads for God to act is because he also remembers God's past actions. In verse 12, he remembers that God is my king who is from of old. In verse 2, he already recounted how God had in the past delivered Israel from Egypt. He continues now to recall how God, his king, had worked salvation in the midst of the earth. So four things that God did in verse 13. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now this dividing of the sea and the crushing of the heads of sea monsters recall the Exodus event once again. When God defeated Egypt, the sea monsters in this uh, verse, to deliver his people. But why use this fantastical language about sea monsters and Leviathan? Well, some people think that the psalmist is alluding to the Babylonian creation myth, the Inuma Elish. In this story, the Babylonian supreme deity, Maduk, or some people call him Baal, uh, he supposedly defeated the sea goddess Tiamak, and Tiamak had taken on the form of a sea dragon, the Leviathan in this verse. And yet, the psalmist here isn't affirming this pagan myth. He's not doing that at all. Rather, he's taking a rather well-known contemporary law in those days to make a point. And his point is this, that this supreme deity who subdued sea monsters and broke Leviathan's heads, he is actually Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, I would say that this is like referencing the Chronicles of Narnia or the Law of the Rings, except that that's really the opposite. See, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they were writing their stories with biblical themes in mind. This is more like using the popular Chinese novel Journey to the West, you know, C.O.T., right? Or the ancient Indian epic Ramayana or Greek mythology to engage specific audiences without necessarily endorsing their religious contents. 
So Beth Tanner says it in this way. This section uses the creation myths of the invaders in verses 4 to 8, and the invaders in this case are the Babylonians, to declare the God of Israel as the one and only legitimate king over the, the gods and the people. This hymn serves here as a call to action. If God could defeat the gods of the enemies, then God should rise up and do the same again. I think it becomes clearer from verse 15 onwards. The psalmist declares that God, you split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. See, in these verses, God is the one who turns on and turns off the water tap at will. He rules over the day and night. He sets the celestial bodies in place and he determines the boundaries of land and sea and divides up the seasons. These are his creation acts from the very beginning. The psalmist appeals to God's past acts in salvation and creation and he now asks that God does them once again. Now, earlier in verses 4 to 8, the psalmist had recounted the false actions with a series of statements, starting with they. Here, in verses 12 to 17, we have another list of God's past actions, beginning with you. So both of this, the false actions and God's past actions, both are the psalmist's appeals for God to act. Yet the psalmist has still one more plea, and this is his trump card. He asks God now to remember your covenant and act. In verse 18, he says this to God, he cries, Remember this, O Lord, how the, the enemy scoffs and the foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Notice here that the honour of God's name continues to weigh heavily on his mind as the psalmist makes his pleas to God. He asks God to punish the wicked and foolish, the enemy who reviles his name. He also asks God to vindicate his poor and needy people so that they may praise his name. Notice how these pleas are also based on the covenant that God had made with Abraham and David and the people of Israel. In verse 20, the psalmist calls upon God to remember or to have regard for his covenant. Now, in considering his covenant, he calls God to remember two groups of people. The first group in verse 2 is his congregation, the people of Israel who have been purchased and redeemed by him from Egypt. And here he calls them the poor of the Lord. They are his poor because they live in a world that hates them, that persecutes them on account of God. And the second group of people here, they are the enemies in verse 18 and the foolish in verse 22. So the wicked and the foolish, they are both the same group that scoffs at God. In verse 23, he asks God, Do not forget the clamour of your foes, 
the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. And so the psalmist asked God to remember and not to forget both his people and his enemies. Now, to ask God to remember, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New, is really to ask God to act on behalf of his covenant people. It is really to pray this, Arise, O God, defend your cause. And this is the cry of the faithful and not the faithless, asking God to give them a reason not to be ashamed, but to praise his name once again. So the psalmist didn't recount the actions of God and his foes because he fears that God is forgetful. He needs to be reminded. Rather, the psalmist recounts God's acts for the sake of himself and for the sake of God's people so that they may have faith that what God has done already in the past, he can do it again. So lastly, implications for ourselves we shall see how God has already defended his cause. Now, next week in Psalm 75, we will hear God's own response to the psalmist's uh, pleas in Psalm 74. So I'll leave that to next week. Uh, I won't extend the sermon further. But in the New Testament, we also come to learn how God has remembered his people and he remembered his covenant with us. And how did God remember? by taking action to send us his son Jesus to deal completely with our human problem of sin and to deliver us from our enemy, the devil. And so we can praise him as well, saying, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, on the final day, God will do something even greater, something more definitive about sin and about our enemy, the devil. At the start of the service, we read of that great multitude in heaven crying out to God in Revelation chapter 19. And they shouted, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so what does it mean for us believers right now? Since we know that God will finally carry out that judgment. Well, for us now, we can remember what the psalmist recounts to us. We can first remember that we are God's redeemed people. We have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of his son. So now we belong to him and we are precious to him. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39, he says, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This should be quite familiar to us. We just read this a few weeks ago. Second, we can also remember the actions of God's foes. Ephesians 6 shows us that the, re the reality and intensity of the devil's diverse and devious schemes against God's people. So really, the true foe is the devil. 
is the one behind the hostility of the world against the faithful. And so we need to put on the full armour of God to pray and to depend on God to deliver us from the evil one. We should recognise that our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against one another, but against the devil and his spiritual forces of evil. And we can pray for God to convict and to convert our human opponents and persecutors. Third, we can also remember the past actions of our God. By His Spirit, God has given us new birth to be His new creation. By the death and resurrection of His Son, He has delivered us from slavery to sin and to Satan to be His congregation, the tribe of His heritage. And though believers throughout the ages until today have continued to suffer for the sake of God's name, they have always been delivered by God through these persecutions, and some have been delivered into His eternal kingdom. God has done this for them, and He can also do it for us as well. Fourth, we can also remember God's covenant and ask Him to act. God remains faithful and willing to act on behalf of His people. He has acted out of His grace towards us in Christ, and we can ask Him to act once again, to arise and defend His cause for the sake of His name. So, brothers and sisters and friends, the Church of Jesus Christ is not a lost cause, although in the sight of the world we may seem weak and often powerless. We are in decline. And that is because God has remembered us. Now, the church in Japan may seem small and insignificant, right? 0.8%, how much is that? But our sister Chelsea and many local and overseas believers, they are sharing the good news of Jesus, one person at a time. Likewise, in Taiwan, with our sister Singyi as well. As many as, as are appointed to eternal life shall believe, rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. For Christians in China, things are tough, and they may get even tougher in the coming days. But the news that we are getting from, from inside shows that Christianity is really flourishing there. Likewise, in the Middle East and in Africa, where Christians continue to face religious persecutions. And so the words of Tertullian, the, the early church historian, remains true today. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As for the empty church buildings in the post-Christian West, we do also hear of faithful churches and ministers, and they are growing and thriving. So it is not liberalism or moral compromise that can bring back the flocks, as some have thought. Rather, it is faithfulness to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, just this week, I read of how Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish theologian, has returned home to his native Scotland, to Aberdeen, after re retirement, and he joined this small church called Trinity Church. And it's a small church, but it's growing, and they are able to take over the building of an, uh, an old church, an old church building of a dying congregation. And so God's word continues to grow. There are also faithful Christians like Andrew Thorburn, who was forced to resign this week as the CEO of an Australian football league club in Melbourne. He was forced to resign within 24 hours of the news of his appointment. And why is that so? It's not because of anything that he's already said or did, 
but simply because of his membership in the church. Okay? And this church is one of, one of those that my, uh, one of my college mates is pastoring right now. And so I, I read from this article. In the personal statement last night, Andrew Thorburn stated that today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square. And so the, the writer says, sadly, Andrew is right. But as Jesus once said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Football or God, an AFL club or his church, faced with an intolerable choice, Andrew Thorburn chose the better path. Now I wonder one day, will you also, will I also come under fire for belonging to ARPC? And on that day, will you also choose the better path for Christ? I close with this story, this last story about Brother Andrew. Right? Brother Andrew, most people would know him as uh, Brother Andrew or God's Smuggler. And this title was named after a book about him. But his full name was really Andrew van der Berger, And he was a Dutch evangelical Christian. For years, until he got really famous, he smuggled precious Bibles into his, in his blue Volkswagen into communist-controlled countries in Europe to persecuted believers who desperately needed God's word. And each time he passed through the borders and the guards searched his car, he would pray something like this, Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture that I want to take to your children across this border. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now, I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see the things, those things you do not want them to see. And so for years, he was able to successfully bring across hundreds and thousands of Bibles to people, churches, and Christians who need them. And the ministry which, which he subsequently founded, Open Doors, continues to raise awareness about persecution and to provide Bibles and other resources to persecuted Christians around the world. Brother Andrew entered into glory last week on the 27th of September in the Netherlands. When asked later in his life whether he has any regrets about his life's work, he said this, If I could live my life over again, I would be a lot more radical. <laughs> As if it's not... She's not radical enough. Now, when we hear of men and women such as this, you and I may wonder, well and good for him, for her, but I'm not special, I'm, I'm nothing like this person. Well, Brother Andrew once said this, I'm not an evangelical stuntman, I'm just an ordinary guy. What I did, anyone can do. See, the only difference between him and us is our vision. It's the vision that he had which is a vision of his Lord Jesus and the preciousness of his gospel. So he said this, I promised God that as often as I could lay my hands on the Bible, I will bring it to these children of his behind the wall that man built to every country where God opened the door long enough for me to sleep through. This torch has been left behind by Brother Andrew and other men and women like him. So brothers and sisters in Christ, will we pick up the torch of our brothers and sisters? 
Will we also cry out to the Lord for his name's sake and plead with him to arise and act for his people? Let's go to God in prayer. O God, our Creator and Saviour, please remember your people and have regard for your covenant. We see and hear about your church around the world suffering for your name's sake. And so we pray with the psalmist, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garments and destroy your foes. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.